This is the Social Leader Podcast, inspired by entrepreneurs, founders, faith leaders, innovators, volunteers, visioneers from every single walk of life. They are the social venturers among us, those who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charity in order to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. Social leaders are the true leaders among us because they are the ones that are forging sustainable solutions to solve our community's most tangled problems. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews. And real quick, before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by Reconciliation Services. We're a social venture nonprofit based here in Kansas City, Missouri, working to bring people together across the dividing line that is Troost Avenue. It's the racial and economic dividing line in our city, and we're working to reveal the strength of all and cultivate a community that's seeking racial and economic reconciliation. And if you're inspired by today's show, and if you want to learn to lead with greater social impact from your leadership lane, wherever you work, whatever you do, or if you just want to learn to be a more impactful volunteer, if you want to be prepared, then I'm really excited for you to check out thesocialleader.org. On that website, you can find our brand new e-course called The Social Leader Essentials, where you can learn to think and to have an entrepreneurial mindset like a social entrepreneur. You can learn to root out bias in yourself and in your team, and you can learn the mental health 101 skills that you need in order to become a trauma-informed and strength-based leader. I hope you'll go to thesocialleader.org and check out the e-course today. Well, I'm really excited to welcome to the program a new friend of mine. His name is Jeremy Bo uh, Jeremy Bowman, and Jeremy is hailing from Nebraska. He is a really incredible mix of people, a leader, an entrepreneur, a founder, a tech founder from New York, turned nonprofit leader who now works with people who are transitioning from prison back into society, and he teaches them entrepreneurial skills and life skills to help them uh, reduce the chances that they're going to end up back in prison and to help all of us learn uh, how to give each other a second chance. Jeremy, welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. Well, Father Justin, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, you are such an interesting person because as you and I were getting ready for the show, I don't think I've ever met anybody who was a tech founder in New York and <laughs> and then got uh you know holds a master's in leadership from Creighton, but then has spent, you know, almost two decades in social leadership, now in the nonprofit world, working with folks who are transitioning out of the prison system. I've got to know more about your journey. Tell me the story about how you became a tech founder in New York, and then what happened that you decided to make this big switch in your life and your direction? Yeah, so grew up in New York City, uh, grew up in Queens, and then lived in northern New Jersey uh, during high school. And after college, just like a lot of you know mid-20-somethings in New York City, uh, I was working in a large tech company. Uh, doing dedicated internet connectivity and web hosting. And a uh, gentleman and myself from that company went and started our own company called New York Telecom. 
we had uh, grown up to about 12 staff and we're doing about a million and a half in sales, uh, selling high-speed data circuits when companies finally said, hey, we need high-speed data to do uh, to do business and we need bandwidth. And so we sold bandwidth. We sold bandwidth um, circuits and we sold the, uh, the bandwidth through our web hosting and dedicated internet connectivity work. And uh, kind of a long story short, our infrastructure was in the Five World Trade Center, which was uh, severely damaged on September 11th. Our offices were a few blocks south and uh, our offices became a crime scene on September 11th. And uh, our infrastructure was destroyed. We were a small organization trying to look for an exit uh, to a larger internet service provider. So we didn't have much redundancy. And, you know, there was a lot of loss during that time, um, loss of life and a lot of people who I knew, um, you know, were, were affected and impacted in different ways during the disaster. And it just really was one of those moments that you kind of remember before and after that time. Uh, and for me, it was a time to really do some soul searching around what I wanted to do with my life and vocationally what I was going to spend my time on. And I got my first nonprofit job after that, raising money for the disaster at a large uh, nonprofit social service organization. We were raising money for victims and families and small business owners and just fell in love with mission driven work and my yep. uh, leadership within a nonprofit context and using the sales background that I had in, in my tech business uh, to help people. And I've been on that journey now for 19 years, which has led me uh, of all places to Nebraska. Well, your experience on 9-11 as the planes hit the, the World Trade Center towers and being right there, having your whole um, startup company right there and becoming a crime scene in an instant must have been really traumatizing for you do you look back on that and see that that trauma caused you to switch industries or do you see some longer lasting life effects from that trauma or were you were you just sort of fed up with being a tech founder? I mean, wh what happened in that moment and how did it impact you on a long haul? Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, entrepreneurship. I enjoyed small business creation. I wasn't necessarily the the tech person my partner was and I but I didn't really know what I wanted to to kind of do with my life and so when you're staring down mortality I think sometimes we stop stop and we take stock of our lives and where are we going and what are we doing um and you know losing people that you know and I probably haven't always dealt with uh those events um you know, there's probably trauma there. I still can't watch any of the anniversary shows. Um, I've, you know, really not went there, <laughs> you know, for, for many years and eventually left New York um, mm. because there was a lot of trauma there. And, you know, I, I think um, through my faith and meditation and different things I do in my life, I've, I'm in a better place with it, but I, um, New York's the place I love and there are people I love and it was attacked and it was a very traumatic, uh, life-changing event. And when I took stock, I thought I need to be doing something that, um, serves a greater good, um, something that's more altruistic than, uh, trying to sell off a internet company. 
Yeah, you know, there's an author that I really like, a popular author named Henry Henry Nowen, and he wrote a book called Wounded Healer. Yeah. And as I hear your story, it really resonates with me that a lot of the best leaders I know are actually pretty vulnerable about traumatic events or things that they've been through in their life or in their childhood. What role do you think that that being wounded plays in becoming a healer or becoming a leader? How do, how do we bring those wounds and, and those moments of trauma into our leadership and how do they positively shape our leadership as a result? You're getting deep right away. I love it. Oh, sorry. I got to go there because you're talking it. Yeah, about no, fantastic. I think it's great. I think, um, look, we're, you know, we're all saint and sinner, right? We, we all are, uh, complex. We all have, um, things that we've done that we're not proud of. We've all struggled with different things. And when we can really connect with the deep humanity of ourselves and others, I think that's where real deep work can be done. And I think it, you know, takes broken people to help fix other broken people. And, um, depending on your faith and what your expression of that is, um, that's a big component for me. I think leaning into, um, what my faith is and what I feel called to, and, um, you know, that wounded healer or, or servant leader heart uh, is something that uh, I've really worked to cultivate over the years and is really a big part of um, vocationally. I'm, I'm not very different than I am in, in normal life because it's all connected. Um, so yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. Well, here you are, you know, working, you know, at 9-11, you're working in a, as a tech founder. And then all of a sudden this thing happens that just shifts your whole perspective and it introduces a whole new level of emotion and wounding. And in that, we can become paralyzed, I think, and we can run from it. And in that, we can also dig more deeply into our heart and do the hard heart work. And one of the things that then you go on to do is you go on to serve folks in the nonprofit world. And particularly, you know, you talked about serving people through social services and now at Rise, which we're going to get to in a minute, the, mm -hmm. the uh, organization that you lead now, you're working with people who are um, victims of trauma, people who have also committed acts of violence or mm -hmm. acts of um, acts against our, our common humanity that caused them to end up in prison. And so there's that deep well of suffering that I think we all share in some way. And I wonder whether or not leaders think about the power that's in that well often enough, right? But you made this big transition. When you switched into the nonprofit world, was it fulfilling for you in that way? Or did you sense that you were embracing this new servant leader perspective or did it just evolve over time? I'd say it evolved over time. I think I knew that I wanted to be of service to others. And you kind of look and say, what do I have to work with? What are my gifts? And at the time it was sales and uh, kind of an openness and, um, and a curiosity to learn about things and to learn about others, a deep care for others. And once you begin kind of putting that to, to use and fulfilling a mission, I think you um, are changed by that. And so over the trajectory of, of my time working in nonprofits and higher education, I, I can't imagine, you know, not waking up every day and working on a cause or some type of mission based um, 
vocation. I, I think that's really what kind of drives and fills me. I, I remember taking a um, a Bible study once, and there was a concept that I that really resonated with me. Um, this idea about kind of having a holy discontent where there's something that just really kind of grabs you and eats at you. And it's, it's, you know, something that we're wrestling with societally or it's a social justice thing. And it really compels you to kind of get off the couch and go do something about it. And I really felt that um, kind of growing um, holy discontent around mass incarceration as I got deeper into my career doing work in nonprofits and just seeing how the system impacted, you know, from the foster care organization I worked at uh, to education related organizations, um, undergirding a lot of this was um, this infrastructure of mass incarceration and just deeply felt called to uh, try to do something about it. And for a long time, that was as a volunteer. Well, let's get to that because you go from tech founder to nonprofit development guy, and you start working in higher education, and eventually you start through social services and through education and through your leadership work there, you begin to see these like systems at play in the lives of the people that you're trying to impact. And you also see the barriers to things like education that then impact others. And now you lead an organization called Rise, uh, based in Nebraska. You're in many prisons all across the state. And your vision statement is all people will find freedom from cycles of incarceration. So tell us more about Rise and unpack that vision statement for us so we know more about what you do specifically. Yeah, so I worked at Creighton University in Omaha for about seven years. And during that time, I volunteered at the Douglas County Jail, the local jail here. And when you talk about that wounded healer piece um, and connecting with shared humanity, it was my one hour a week after work going into the jail and mentoring men that were waiting for uh, to be either sentenced or released and meeting with them week after week and then meeting with more and more and, you know, probably over 150 people over that time period, you get to see a lot of common themes and the common themes were um, pretty consistent. We incarcerate at really staggering rates, um, people of color, and we uh, have a generational cycle of incarceration. That was news to me, seeing how many people uh, that I would mentor had parents and grandparents and siblings and kids that had been incarcerated, where it was really kind of this birthright. You know, if your mom or dad's a lawyer or a doctor, you might say, hey, maybe I can do that. Right. Uh, if all you know is incarceration, you know, sometimes it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Uh Gang. Yeah, you can't be what you can't see, right? You can't be something that's or right. aspire to something as easily if you can't see it. And if that's all you've known is your family member or friends of yours being incarcerated, that becomes your reality more than, say, going to college or getting that great job. Exactly, exactly. And uh, common issues around substance abuse, common issues around gangs, you know, where mm -hmm. for young people, Gangs are community. Gangs are where, you know, we all seek community during this COVID time. It's so hard for us not to be together and connected. Yeah. Uh, if you're, if the people in your life that you love or um, have abandoned you or are incarcerated and you're seeking that uh, approval, it's often, it's often found in young people in gangs. And so that was 
uh, the, all of these themes I saw come together and I was volunteering through my church uh, in there in kind of, a, you know, a Stephen minister context and sure. uh, as a, as a caregiver, as a caregiver. But um, a lot of the folks I met with wanted to talk about employment. They wanted to talk about entrepreneurship. And I really saw that there was this desire uh, to hustle, to be able to uh, get out and stay out if you were able to, you know, possibly create a small business and what better uh, way to do that than folks that have that skill set. Because for the, for a lot of these uh, folks, they'd had to um, hustle from a young age. A lot of them are entrepreneurs and uh, it's out of necessity. So they're resilient, they're adaptable, um, they know sales cycles and supply and demand and all, all of the things that society says, hey, that's a really good entrepreneur. If you do it in an illegal context, you know, there's some challenges there, but but we believe that that mindset and that skill set is really valuable. And so that idea around, you know, helping foster uh, employment readiness, but also if you can't get a job, but you can create your own job, what an opportunity that that could be for people. And so we ended up becoming a part of a national organization four years ago that was doing similar work. And over time, we morphed that to a local organization uh, and rebranded as RISE. And so what RISE does, and like I said, our, like you said, our mission is that all people will find freedom from cycles of incarceration. And that's, you know, the 70% of kids in our country who will follow in their parents' footsteps into prison. And this idea that 89% of people reoffend don't have a job at the time that they reoffend and are reincarcerated. And, you know, looking at the expense of incarceration in, in our state, Nebraska, it costs $36,000 to incarcerate one person for one year. So it's a very costly problem. Um, it's a social justice issue. There are, um, you know, three out of four people nationally that will reoffend and go back to prison within five years. Uh, in our in our state, it's a little better. It's a, probably about one in three. So you look at all of that from a system standpoint, and you say, how can we change this? Uh, so our program le really looks at rehabilitation and reentry from inside out. So we go ahead. So you go from working in the nonprofit world, volunteering through your church in the prison. Yeah. You start to have this big wake up about mass incarceration and what's happening in our country and the number of black and brown bodies that are incarcerated in the United States. In fact, I read in one book recently that quoted a statistic that said that there are more uh, black men incarcerated today in the United States than there ever were enslaved in the United States previously. Now, I don't have the exact numbers, but it approximates the problem. And I think that We've got a systemic issue here, but you are saying that you see people differently. You see strength where other people see weakness. You're seeing um, entrepreneurial skills where other people are simply seeing um, crime. And so you go from working out in the workaday world to actually then becoming the executive director of this organization and dedicating your life to this how did you, is there a story or somebody that helped you to see people differently? Because if there's one thing that I know that makes a difference in, in the work that we do is that if you come to see somebody from a strength-based perspective, rather than in their deficits, in their weaknesses, all of a sudden, as you said, you see our common humanity and you can see opportunity and possibility. Tell me a story of somebody who taught you that, 
as you were making that journey to your current position? An early version of a story about that would be my dad, who's a Lutheran pastor, who this is probably not something you can do anymore, but at seven or eight years old, um, he would take me out for opening day to go to Shea Stadium. And we would uh, make some calls on the way to, to the ballpark. And sometimes that would be Rikers Island. And so I remember going into the prison as a seven or eight year old. And that really de- kind of stigmatized me from, I think what a lot of people have perceptions about prison and who's incarcerated because he was praying with people and we would talk about my little league and how bad the Mets were. And, you know, we just got to know people. And, you know, that really told me these are just people like, you know, like me, like uh, my family uh, who, you know, have fallen into some hard times. And, mm-hmm. in th- you know, it's really the folks who are incarcerated that taught me the most learning about um, how their trauma had, had led to their incarceration. And, you know, the reality is like, just about every person we've ever worked with at Rise or that I've mentored uh, as a volunteer has had very deep trauma in their own life. They have been victims of crimes in their own life. And that those deep wounds, you know, perpetuate into uh, shame and into substance abuse and anger and oftentimes violence and crime. Uh, but it can be traced back to uh, some very deep traumas that, uh, you know, I was blessed not to experience in my own life, but I know, but I know many people have. And so seeing that resilience and that um, desire to change your circumstance with all of these um systemic uh things coming against you that really that really impacted me um so i continue to learn so much from our incarcerated brothers and sisters and they're really uh the one you know what 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 really brought me to the point where prayerfully you know went home one day and talked to my wife and said you know i think i'm gonna leave my job at the university and you know spend most of my time, you know, work, working in, in prison. And, and she was just great with that. She's like, sounds good. Let's go work in the prisons. Or was she like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. how, how she, did she take that? She's incredible. And, you know, for her, it's, if we're prayerful about things and that, and it's what we're being called to. And there were so many things that were uh, feeling like a call along the way that we both were just um, stepping out in faith in knowing that God would provide and, um, and, and being blessed in ways we never imagined as we did step out in faith. So she was very comfortable with that. And, um, you know, basically was the only employee at one point and, you know, working in one facility. And now we work in seven and we have 17 full-time staff, um, about half of which are graduates of our program. Um, which I think is amazing because, and I want to get to the program, but you see people, as evidenced by the fact that you have so many people from your program who are formerly incarcerated on your own staff, you see people, I think, from the inside out. You don't see the outside of somebody and what they've done and their record and their rap sheet. You're seeing people from a strength-based perspective. You're looking first for that resiliency that we actually all have, which if we were to define resiliency, I think we might agree. It's like the ability for a rubber band to snap back into shape again. And trauma is when the rubber band gets stretched and doesn't quite go back the way that it was. And so it takes work and time and 
and healing in order to, to get back into shape. And that resiliency builds up again. But you see people from the inside out. And I know that your program takes an inside out approach. Talk to us about that and describe the program and, and how it works from inside the prison to then transitioning out. So, yeah, so we do a six-month program in the um, seven prisons that we serve here in Nebraska that is uh, for men and women, depending on the facility. And it is, it's holistic in nature. It's very rigorous. Our participants, who we call builders, we really want to use humanizing language. So one of the shifts for, you know, what we're hoping to do with, with people in the community is not, not labeling people, not calling them felons or criminals or ex-cons. These are people. And in our program, we call them builders. So our builders are working on re-entry planning. They do a 20-page re-entry plan in our program. Uh, they do uh, workforce readiness. They do a lot of character development. So we're working and digging into things like parenting and networking and uh etiquette and shame and forgiveness and how to make a meaningful apology and just things that foundationally will set you up uh, for future success. And we need to do some of that inside work before we can start using other building blocks. So that first three months of the program, we call it foundations. Then we go into job readiness and workforce readiness. So resumes, uh, we work on personal statements, how people talk about their incarceration and job interviews mm -hmm. in ways that we have seen to be more successful. Uh, we work on mock interviewing. We work on um, some of the soft skills that employers are really looking for. And then we have this entrepreneurship component where all of our participants work on a business idea and then create a plan and then they pitch it. And we have volunteers that come in. It's like a Shark Tank style pitch competition. We have IOUs of funding to the top five winners when they get out to put towards their small business. And the participants get a certificate in workforce readiness from the University of Nebraska Omaha's business school. So they get that certificate. We do a cap and gown graduation. They're in class two to three days a week, usually doing 15 to 20 hours a week of work. So it is a big commitment. That's and big. It's a big uh, accomplishment when people graduate. And, you know, you keep talking ab about strengths and we do have them identify their top five Gallup strengths. And mm. just this shift in thinking that you, you have strengths at all when people your whole life have told you that you're no good and you don't. Yeah, you're nothing. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never amount right. to anything. Yeah. But you, you have know, words are powerful. And I, I just want to real quickly say yeah. I love that you call people builders rather than XOs or offenders or all the language, you know, second chance employment opportunities, whatever. Um, high demand workforce development. You know, it's like we use all these euphemisms for people. But I love that you say builders because our language and our words are powerful. And I think if more leaders, were to name and call things by the attributes that are positive, the attributes that relate to resiliency, the more we would see that come out, not just in people who are the builders that you're working with, but just even in the workaday world. You know, people yeah. on our teams who were so quick to say, gosh, that guy's always late. But when we speak that, it becomes self-fulfilling. Instead of saying, that guy always has a great answer, you know, and I really hope he's here because we need to hear what he has to say. Right. And so yeah. I'm not talking about being, you know, overlooking things that need to be addressed as managers or as leaders, but counterbalancing kind of that natural state of negativity, you know, the words that we use that tear down 
with using those positive words like builder. And I really commend you for that. I love that you call them builders. Okay, yeah. so then you go yeah. through this program, it's this huge accomplishment, but it doesn't end there. You go on to work with people even after they're transitioning, and then you're working with employers all across Nebraska, correct? Yeah, so they finished that six-month program, and they might be returning to the community soon, or they might be there for a while. We have, we have additional programming if they're going to be incarcerated for a while. We actually have people on life sentences and longer sentences that have taken our program, and they stay involved as peer facilitators. They help us actually deploy our program in facilities. They have value, and they give back to their community in a positive way. Uh, but then we have a reentry team that begins really helping people uh, implement their reentry plan and doing really intensive case management. And then we're working on housing uh, for the folks when they get out. We work with them when they work move to work release facilities and then when they either parole or mandatory discharge back to the community. Um, we have a mentoring program of community volunteers that agree to a six-month mentoring relationship, like big brothers, big sisters for reentry. Mm -hmm. And our case managers are working on housing. They're working on employment. Uh, so we do work with a lot of employers and try to build pipelines into the workforce for livable wage jobs. And we do referrals around mental health and substance abuse because those are um, certainly big, big challenges that people face. And uh, there's a large percentage of people incarcerated that have mental health issues. Our mental, you know, our, our prison system has become the largest mental health care provider in the state. And, you know, we criminalize, we criminalize mental health uh, in, you know, which, which, uh, you know, it, I have a real problem. with. <laughs> we have to change that. I mean, that's an important sidebar because a lot of people want to look in Kansas City where I'm um, sitting right now. I mean, people talk about violence in the community and we want to address violence only through policing or police reform. But we need mental health services yeah. when our prisons and our police are expected to be, you know, trained mental health counselors in the field. It just breaks my heart every time I see, you know, somebody murdered or somebody killed who's actually having a mental health crisis. They don't necessarily need police intervention, but for to keep themselves and other people safe. But yeah. man, that that we, we could do a whole show just on mental health and yes. and our uh, the way we criminalize, you know, people that are struggling. So yeah. now I'm curious. So when people come out of your program, I mean, you've just enumerated this incredible program where you've got, I mean, you don't just skim the surface, do a little case management, a little housing. I mean, you're going deep yeah. and long with people from the time you meet them in prison all the way until they're successfully housed. And, and then even after that, but talk to me about what you do with the employers, because I've always felt like if all we do is concentrate on those who are the builders, those who are transitioning out of uh, the cycle of incarceration, if all we do is focus all our attention on them, we're kind of missing half of the equation, which is the employer, their attitude, their language, their skills. Talk to me about what you do with them and are you teaching those employers or people in the community to engage in a better way? Yes, so we can get people prepared on reentry planning and job ready and get them all ready to come home and get a job uh, and, and, and do that piece of it. If we don't prepare the community to welcome people home with opportunities, 
they're never going to get any traction. And so how we treat people post-incarceration is very important. So what we uh, pre-COVID have done is we've brought over 800 business owners, HR professionals, uh, companies uh, sending groups in into facilities uh, to do coaching days during our six-month program. So we'll bring groups of folks in where they are reviewing resumes and doing mock interviews. They're reviewing business plans. They're listening to personal statements, but they're also connecting. We're doing empathy building. And that's where the change happens. When you see how much you have in common with somebody who's incarcerated, but also how much you have different about your background, your upbringing, and people who are incarcerated and how much they all have things in common, um, a light bulb goes on for people and, you know, a, a, a crime that you have in your mind becomes a person with a story and a name. And right. that's, that's where, and that leads to opportunity. Well, that's, that's really your path, right? I mean, that's what changed yeah. your heart all along the way from the time your dad took you to Rikers all the way until you were volunteering with your church. But, but what, what about beyond that? Because let's be honest, when, when somebody's out of your program, they're not there with you, they're on a job site, the way that the employer and the foreman on the job or whoever that they're working for engages with that builder, that person who's graduated your program, um, they need more than just exposure, right? They yeah. need that softness of heart. But what are some skills that employers and owners and leaders who want to employ people who are transitioning out of cycles of incarceration, what are some skills that they need to hone in themselves in order for those people to be successful? Yeah. So, you know, I think Jim Collins had that level five leader. Mm. Um, that, and I really believe in that, that love, when you get to that level five, you have this mix of that, um, personal humility and, you know, being open with strong professional will. When I think about my meditative practice, you have a strong back, but you have that soft open front. Mm -hmm. And I think for leaders of organizations, they have to have that wonder and that curiosity and openness and really think about what do we want our company to stand for? Can we put a stake in the ground and say, we care about social justice. You know, this is a black eye on our country and we should be a place that provides second chances. And, you know, this, these people, you know, people coming out of incarceration will enrich our culture. They will bring new perspectives. They'll bring uh, a, a different, a difference of opinion and ideas and creativity. Uh, people who are incarcerated, you know, they're, that, that gap in their resume, a lot happens in that time. And employers don't even really think about it. They see the gap in time. And it's likely that person is uh, working, you know, gaining skills, getting programming done. Uh, and, you know, I've seen some of the best conflict resolution in, in prisons better than I have in boardrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to uh, work with people that aren't like you, that are in close proximity to you. Who else is better prepared to navigate that um, than somebody who had to navigate incarceration? The resilience that you talked about and just the gratitude, how much gratitude people have when you do give them that opportunity. And if employers have that ability to provide it, uh, we say, if you're going to you know, go that route, 
partner with an organization like Rise, where we're coming alongside that individual. Uh, we're going to help you. Um, you know, we're going to kind of hold your hand through this, and we'll help you understand where your new employee is coming from and some of the barriers that they face. And so we try to get access to leadership teams and talk about what it means to do reentry hiring. You know, if companies want to do it just because there's federal incentives and there are, there's, you know, there's second chance hiring, there's stipends, sure. there's tax credits, there's all kinds of things that you can take advantage of. But if you just philosophically say, we want to offer somebody uh, an opportunity that they really need, we're not going to, um, think about somebody's worst day of their life. We don't do that for ourselves. We don't do that for our staff. We're not going to, you know, narrowly define somebody by that bad judgment. Um, people change and, you know, we're all evolving and learning and growing. Uh, you know, there's a real focus right now for employers around getting um, diversity and inclusion right. right. And, you know, reentry hiring can, you know, be a big part of what that solution is for, for business owners. So I think it's being receptive, um, not being fear-based, you know, um, educating yourself. You know, most people that commit violent crimes, you know, that's not something that uh, repeats. You know, it's often uh, something that happens very young uh, in somebody's life, often related to gangs. And those things don't, you're, you're not at risk, you know. And if you're worried that you're at risk at all, there's insurance and things that you can do. So I really, really encourage leaders to, um, you know, take a stand and, and say, this will make us better. You know, we're going to get somebody who's going to show up on time and work really hard and really value what this opportunity is. I think you've said something so profound that's not just about hiring people who are coming from cycles of incarceration, but really hiring anybody who's not like you. <laughs> the idea that we can add to our company culture things, uh, lived experiences, gratitude, you know, skill sets, perspectives that we don't possess and that we need. And if we look at those um, opportunities to hire people that are different from us, and if we go and work on our implicit bias or unconscious bias, if we become educated about trauma and the way that trauma impacts people, including us, by the way, like your story about 9-11, you know, if we can get to the places leaders where we value that diversity in all of pe all people that we encounter, we actually, I think, can see increased employee engagement. We can see less turnover. We can see better ROI on all of that, you know, onboarding, on, on ramp that we talk about when we talk about diverse workforce uh, development and hiring, you bring out something really important. And that is again, to see the potential, the possibility to see somebody from the inside out. And I, I really love that. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, you know, you are a very purpose driven leader, but mm. you know, I think you would agree. Most people I think would agree. It's hard to keep your focus, even if you've got a strong purpose, but what are two or three um, practices or things that you could lessons that you could teach two or three lessons that you could teach any leader who is looking to lead with greater social impact, um, things that you practice in your own life. Yeah, I think one key part of my leadership has been uh, a meditation practice that I started about five years ago, and particularly one that 
is focused on compassion and gratitude and loving kindness where you're sitting with um, uh, just a real openness to, to everyone, to people that you know and love, to people who are neutral or people who um, have caused harm. And, you know, really reflecting on the fact that there's basic goodness in everyone. We all have this inherent basic goodness and everybody really strives to, um, you know, to have their needs met and to and to be happy and have joy. We all crave these things. So having just kind of that openness to gratitude and compassion as a leader has, has really been helpful to me. Being able to, um, uh, you know, just kind of stay even and kind of level-headed, uh, you know, through um, learning about things like, um, um, you know, nonviolent uh, communication and, you know, breathing practices and things that can keep us, keep us centered and rooted. Uh, I read a lot. I read a lot about um, issues around mass incarceration. I read a lot about leadership. And, you know, I think having some type of physical outlet, you know, I do some yoga and running and things like that. Um, just keeping your mind active and your body active and, and having this openness of compassion and gratitude and loving kindness is um, something that provides more depth for a leader. You know, you what you really want to do as a leader is be able to hold space, right? Mm, right. And ultimately for your staff, uh, for the people that you serve or your customers, your ability as a leader to, um, to create enough of a... Um, you know, of an openness to hold in a, as much space as you can. I think people see that and they know it and it increases your empathy. It makes deeper trusting connections with people and it, it's authentic and it comes from, you know, it comes from a, a real place. So, mm -hmm. you know, incre increasing that ability to hold space to me is, is, a practice that I will always do because I think that's really the key to my own, my own leadership. When you practice that, is there something that you do in the moment when holding space becomes uncomfortable? Is there something that you say or something that helps you to keep your hand and your heart open to hold that space when you're there in that uncomfortable moment? Yeah, sometimes there's not words, right? And I think it's okay to say, you know, thanks. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not really, sh you know, that's, that's uh, just a lot that you're, um, that you're sharing. And I have a lot of gratitude. Uh, and I, I don't really have the words, you know, it's hard mm -hmm. to have the right words. And I don't think we need to, you know, some of the conversations in facilities, people are, are telling stories of trauma that are, are things that I've just never believed I would hear or that could happen to people. Um, just, just awful things. And I think just being really present in those moments and uh, not trying to make up words or things to, you know, platitudes, but just to say, that's a lot, you know, sometimes it's enough to say, that's a lot. You went through a lot. And I want to try to help you carry that. One of our values is withness. Um, which is, I don't even know if that's a word, but we kind of like, like it. You know, witness, right. 
But this idea of like getting down into the um, trenches with people and really being with them there, not 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 sympathy, right? Um, where it's kind of like, oh, poor you, I'm sorry for you. But like, man, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling what you've experienced and what you've shared very deeply and, and being present with that and listening attentively um, and just holding that space, I think is is very powerful. I think you've given us a number of really great leadership things that we can hold on to, a lot of lessons, but perhaps two things that really stand out to me as we wrap up. One is the way that you strive to see people and to lead your organization from this inside out approach. And the second is to get with it, right? Withness, to be with people instead of doing for them, to really be with them. And I think that if we can just practice those two things, to see somebody for their strength from the inside out and not from their deficit, not from their, like you, uh, again, I love, here's another thing you said that I love. Don't judge people by the worst day that they've ever had, whether yeah. they're a convicted felon or somebody that we work with on our team. They're more than that. Yeah. But, but yeah, somebody can do a mailbox of bad in a world of good. And all we'll remember is that one little bit of bad that they've done. And so I really appreciate the perspective that you've brought. I appreciate the purpose driven journey that you've been on since uh, being a tech founder and then entering into the nonprofit in the higher education space. And now in your leadership, Jeremy, as the founder and CEO of Rise, congratulations on your really good work. And I know that if people want to reach out to you, they can learn more. You can go to seeusrise.org and find out more about Rise in Nebraska. And uh, is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Anything else that you didn't get to share today that you'd love to share? No, I think that's it. Yeah, check us out. Um, Jeremy at csrise.org. We'd love to you know, hear how this landed for people and always up for a conversation about mass incarceration and what we can collectively do uh, to make to make the world better. So well, we need social leaders like you in every single sector of the United States and all across the world, because if we're going to make the change that you're talking about, it can't just be up to the CEOs of the world. We need people at every leadership level who commit themselves to becoming empathetic and to becoming social leaders. And I think you've given us a great example of that. So again, um, Jeremy Bowman, founder and CEO of Rise. Thank you for joining us today on the Social Leader Podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Father. Absolutely. Well, friends, thank you for spending another uh, episode with us on the Social Leader Podcast. I really encourage you, if you can, to do a huge favor for me. I need to share this podcast with even more people. So I need you to hit the like button, hit the share button, uh, share it out in a group that you're with, email it to folks, or if you're listening on YouTube, hit the little bell icon so you know every time that we go live. Uh, we really want to share this message of social leadership we want to lift up more examples. If you know somebody that's a great example of social leadership that you think I should have on the show, definitely go to thesocialleader.org and email me. Let me know that person, and I'd love to think about having them on the show. And lastly, 
please do go to thesocialleader.org and check out the brand new e-course, The Social Leader Essentials. You can learn to think with a social entrepreneurial mindset, just like Jeremy talked about, making that journey uh, of empathy, having that purpose-driven entrepreneurial mindset that led him to where he is now. You can learn to root out bias in yourself and in your team, and you can learn to become a trained, trauma-informed, and empathetic leader. All of that is what we teach in the Social Leader Essentials. So definitely check it out on thesocialleader.org. And thanks again for joining me today on episode 34 of the Social Leader Podcast. Until next time, let's together learn to lead with greater social impact. See you soon. <laughs>